You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. If you have your comic book, go ahead and grab that and turn with me. No, I just wanted to see if you were listening. Of course, that would be silly, right? If you have your copy of God's Word, grab that. That's what we study here at Faith Church every Sunday. So I hope you've come ready for that today. Ephesians chapter 5 is where we'll be, and we're going to look at chapter 6 as well. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, if you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one. And there are stacks of Bibles on the tables in the back of the room. You can take one now. You can take one on your way out of worship today, wherever's most convenient for you. But we'd love to give you a Bible and no strings attached. And if you don't know your way around the Bible, the text that we're going to study today will appear on the screen so you can follow along with us. If you're willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word It's a bit of a lengthy passage this morning, so you'll get to stretch your legs for a minute here. But do listen carefully to God's Word, Ephesians 5, 22 to chapter 6, verse 4. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, we are coming to the finish line in our study of Ephesians. We have just a few weeks left. And today in chapter 5 and into the beginning of chapter 6, Paul, the writer of this letter, is going to stay on the subject that he began last week, the subject of walking wisely, putting into practice this new identity that we have in Jesus Christ, living as Christ followers. And today he's going to zoom in on the subject of the family. The family. We've learned in this series that the gospel gives us a new identity. It makes you a new person with a new identity. The gospel also creates a new type of community, the church. And as we'll see today, the gospel creates a new kind of family. A new kind of family. Now, the family is a subject that I think there's a lot of confusion around. 
the family needs to be assembled. And really that's what Paul's going to help us do in this passage today. See, just like God is the creator of sex and therefore tells us the proper context for it, that was last Sunday, God is also the creator of the family. And so he tells us how to rightly assemble the family. And modern families need to be assembled. There are many pieces missing. Many pieces out of place today. Most notably, fathers. Father hunger is one of the central maladies of our day. And when we lose the father, we gain weirdness, and in many ways. So today, Paul is going to help us assemble the family. We're going to hear in this passage God's word to wives, God's word to husbands, and God's word to children. Now, Paul's also going to talk in chapter 6 about masters and servants, which has some implications for the employer-employee relationship, but we're going to save that for another day. We'll come back to that in the bonus episode at the end of this series. Let me just say this as a, as a preliminary word. Maybe you're here today and you're not married. Maybe you're thinking maybe one day you will be, or maybe your spouse is, is no longer here for various reasons, and so you're thinking, man, this is a bad day to come to faith church because none of this is going to apply to me. It is going to apply to you. Let me tell you how. Even if you're not married, if you hope to be married one day, you need to know what to look for in a spouse. And even if marriage is something that is in the past or you are called to singleness, the Bible talks about that, you still need to know how to pray for people who are married. So there are implications for you, whoever you are today. But ladies, gentlemen, children, we're going to hear God's word for each of us. So let's listen carefully. We're going to start here with the ladies. God's word to the wife, which we can summarize this way. Gladly affirm your husband as the leader of the family. Ladies, gladly affirm your husband as the leader of the family. Look at verses 22 to 24. See this for yourself. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And perhaps I should start like this. Ladies, no wise person rejects a gift from someone who loves them without at least taking a look at the gift first, right? No wise person just rejects a gift coming from someone you know loves you without at least checking out the gift first. So don't reject this passage simply because it uses the word submit, a word that our culture would have you believe is a primitive term, a characteristic of toxic masculinity. Remember that the God who chose you, ladies, the God who cherishes you, is the same God who inspired this text of Scripture. So there must be something we need in it. There must be something good and beautiful about this gift. Let's unwrap the gift together. Let's unwrap the gift together. 
Wives, submit to your own, your own husbands. Notice, first of all, that the Bible does not teach that women are to submit to men. It does not teach that women are to submit to men. It teaches that a woman is to submit to a man. A wife is to submit to a husband. Now, why does the Bible teach that? Is it because women are less capable, less valuable? Absolutely not. In fact, as we unwrap this gift, there are two terms I want you to keep in mind. Equality and complementary. Equality and complementary. The Bible does not teach wifely submission because women are less valuable or less capable or less intelligent or anything like that. Again and again, the Bible affirms that men and women are created equal, equal in dignity and value and worth, created as God's image bearers, created designed to showcase God's love. In fact, here's just one example. In 1 Peter chapter 3, the Apostle Peter says to the husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, by weaker vessel here, Peter is probably talking about the, the woman's uh, weaker strength compared to the man's. But what's clear, crystal clear, is that women are heirs, believing women are heirs of the grace of life, meaning cherished by God, valuable in His sight, useful in His kingdom. So the Bible does not teach wifely submission because women are less valuable, less capable, less intelligent, none of that. Equality, that's the first concept. And the second one is complementary. Equality and complementary. The Bible teaches us that men and women are equal in value and that we have different and complementary roles to play. Different and complementary roles to play. We see this from the very beginning of the biblical story. Think back to the book of Genesis with me. In Genesis chapter 1, in the creation narrative, God creates the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, and he gives them a command. He gives them an order. Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. This is sometimes called the creation or the cultural mandate. The command, the mandate given to the first man and woman was build families, build society, build culture. But of course, they can't do this without each other. They cannot fulfill the command God had given them without each other. It's not rocket science. If you keep all the bolts in one bag and all the nuts in another bag, you never build anything. Right? Without each other, they can't do what God commanded them to do. They are complementary. Not just biologically, physiologically. There's more. There's more. They're also complementary. Men and women are complementary in the functions or the roles we play within the family. The creation narrative is so important, so foundational, that it's given to us not once but twice in the opening chapters of Genesis. In Genesis 1, we read about the creation of all things. In Genesis 2, the narrator zooms in on the creation of the man and the woman. 
In Genesis 1, everything is good, good, very good. And then for the first time, God says that something is not good. For the first time in the universe, God sees something that's imperfect. What is it? It's the man without the woman. It's the man without the woman. Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. If we take Genesis 2 and we group it together with Ephesians 5, we find the complementary roles that the wife and the husband are to play. In Ephesians 5, we're told that the husband is the head. In Genesis 2, we're told that the wife is the helper. Now, what does that mean? The word helper here is, I think, a, a bit of a misleading translation of the Hebrew term. We have to remember that in the, in the narrative itself, everything in the creation narrative is pointing to the fact that the man and the woman are incomplete without each other. She is created from his rib in the narrative. They're incomplete without each other. So this word helper, it, it does not mean domestic servant. Not even close. In fact, it's interesting. In most places in the Old Testament where this Hebrew word translated as helper, where this word is used, it's used in reference to God. God is the helper. And in other places, it's used in reference to military help, without which the battle would not be won. So you see, the point here is that the woman is a strong helper. A strong helper. She's vital. Without her, the battle is unwinnable. This is not a domestic servant. A strong helper. And then back to Ephesians 5. If that's the role of the woman, she's the strong helper. Ephesians 5 says that the husband is the head. The head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. This term head carries the idea of leadership. The husband is to be the spiritual leader, the servant leader of the family. Now, why is it that the husband is selected to be the head? Well, it's not because women are less capable, less valuable, less intelligent. We've already established that. It's simply because this is God's design for the family. Simply because this is God's design for the family. And when you think about it, there has to be a head in the relationship, right? Because Christian marriage is permanent. Now, track with me on this for a second. Christian marriage is permanent, so there has to be a head. See, this idea of leadership or headship, it's more theoretical as long as the husband and wife are in agreement on things. But what happens when there's a disagreement? What happens when there's a disagreement in the context of a Christian marriage? Well, of course, there should be a lot of conversation. You talk with each other. You should pray. But assuming that a Christian couple has done all of that, discussed, prayed, and the disagreement persists, what then? Well, one of a couple of things has to happen. Either they just go their separate ways because they can't agree, or someone in the relationship must have the casting vote. 
There can't be a majority. There's two people, right? Somebody has to have the casting vote if the marriage is going to be permanent, and Christian marriage is. So God places on the man the spiritual responsibility of leadership. Now, does that mean that men can be domineering, demanding? Is God giving us men the permission to be the taskmaster of the family? Again, not even close. Not even close. Paul has established that men are called to lead. He's now going to tell us how we are called to lead. So men, it's our turn. You might want to put your cup on for this one. God's word to the husband. Gladly assume your sacrificial responsibility. Gladly assume your sacrificial responsibility responsibility. Listen carefully to God's word. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Yes, we are called to be the leaders of our home. Yes, we are called to headship, but remember that Jesus defines headship. Jesus redefines all leadership as servant leadership. Jesus redefines strength as sacrificial strength. He washed the feet of his disciples. He gave himself up for us. This is the type of leadership that we are called to. Men, yes, you have authority in your home, but it's an authority that bleeds for others. If you are the head, it is to have a crown of thorns jammed on it. Now, of course, you're not dying for the sins of your family. Only the death and resurrection of Jesus has the power to save. But Jesus is calling us men to follow in his footsteps to deny ourselves, to make sacrifices, putting the needs and the desires of our families ahead of our own. We lead and we love as Christ himself leads and loves. Now the second thing Paul says here to us men, we are to love as Christ loves. And then in verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives As their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. So in verse 25, he sets a high standard for us. We love as Christ loves. And here he takes that high standard and he makes it concrete or practical. Men, love your wives as you love your own bodies. Well, just think about your day. Think about how many things we do throughout the day to care for our own bodies. We get plenty of sleep, hopefully. We eat breakfast. We prepare our bodies for the day, for work and all that's involved there. We eat lunch. We get some physical exercise of some kind, again, hopefully. We eat dinner. When you think about it, your entire day is full of various things you do to care for your own body. And Paul says, men, 
Love your wives that way. Care for them that way. Look for every opportunity to serve her. Look for every opportunity to nourish her, cherish her, care for her. Look for the little things. I know a lot of guys who act real tough. And they say, you know what, I'm ready. I'm ready to make the ultimate sacrifice for my family. I got the Glock locked and loaded on the bedside table. Good for you. Gunshine state. I get it. I got no problem with that. But hopefully that's never going to happen. Hopefully that day will never come. So how about right now, look for the little things and the lesser sacrifices. Don't worry about going to war for your family. How about just go to the grocery store? How about use your strength to do the dishes? When I pastored in New Zealand years ago, I had an elder who was fond of saying, it's good for the soul to do the dishes. He's right. It's also good for the family to do the dishes. Use your strength to serve your wife. Use your strength to serve your family. By the way, man, this is one of the reasons we should learn manners and teach them to our boys. Manners are a way of disciplining and directing strength. I will use my strength to open this door for you. I will use my strength to carry these boxes for you. Look for ways to love and to serve your wife, men. And the reason we love our wives this way is because your wife has become part of you. Has become part of you. Look at what Paul says next. Therefore, he's quoting from Genesis here, back to the creation narrative. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. When you marry someone, according to Scripture, the two become one flesh. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis has a couple of chapters on these subjects, one on sexual morality and one on Christian marriage. They're both excellent. In the chapter on marriage, here's what he says about this phrase, one flesh. The Christian idea of marriage is based on Christ's words that a man and wife are to be regarded as a single organism. A single organism, for that is what the words one flesh would be in modern English. And the Christians believe that when Jesus said this, he was not expressing a sentiment, but stating a fact. Just as one is stating a fact when one says that a lock and its key are one mechanism, or that a violin and a bow are one musical instrument. The inventor of the human machine was telling us that its two halves, the male and the female, were made to be combined together in pairs, not simply on the sexual level, but totally combined. Totally combined. The monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, 
from all the other kinds of union which were intended to go along with it and make up the total union. One flesh. Total union. Complementary union. According to the Bible, men and women, husbands and wives, we are equal in value and we have different and complementary roles to play. So let's think for just a minute about the implications of this. There are many of them. To the Christian wives in the room, I pose this question. Are you gladly affirming your husband as the leader of your family? Or are you fighting him on that? Are you supporting and trusting and encouraging him? Or are you controlling things? These roles of strong helper and spiritual or servant leader, they are binding across the centuries and cultures. And it's probably for that very reason that the Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of specifics about how this plays out in day-to-day life. You know, maybe you're asking questions like, okay, I get it, but then what, what should the husband do that the wife doesn't? And what should the wife do that the husband doesn't? I need some specifics here. The Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of those specifics precisely because it is God's Word across the centuries and for all cultures. So these roles, strong helper and spiritual or servant leader, are binding. But every couple has to figure out how that plays out in day-to-day life. Ladies, are you gladly affirming your husband as the leader of the family? And to the men, to the men I pose this question. Are you gladly assuming your sacrificial responsibility? Are you functioning as the servant leader of your home? Our sinful tendencies and our family histories will cause us to prefer one of the two. And here's what I mean. The Holy Spirit, man, the Holy Spirit lives in your heart, but Grandpa lives in your bones. So if you have a family history of domineering wives and passive husbands, you will have to work on the leader part of servant leader. You hear me? And if you have a family history of abrasive alpha males, then you will have to work on the servant part of servant leader. Now, wherever your marriage and wherever your family might be struggling, men, you should take the lead in moving your family toward biblical reconciliation. Whenever a couple comes to me for marriage counsel, I always begin with the assumption that the man is responsible. So now none of you guys are going to come see me for counsel, right? I always begin with the assumption that the man is responsible. That does not mean necessarily that he's the only one who's made a mistake. 
But because God calls us to be the spiritual leaders of our families, it does mean that the man is responsible for taking the first step toward biblical reconciliation. So wherever your marriage or family might be struggling, men, God's word is calling you this morning to step up, use your strength in the right way, lead your family toward biblical reconciliation. That's God's word for the wives and God's word for the husbands. One final part this morning. God's word for the children. So children of all ages. Now it's your turn. And we can summarize the final part of the passage like this. Children, obey and show honor to your parents. Obey and show honor to your parents. Chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, it's significant. Don't miss this. It's significant that Paul addresses children directly here. He doesn't speak to the parents who are then to go and inform their children. He speaks directly to the children. Now, remember the context of early Christianity. The first Christians didn't have buildings like this. They met in homes. And when a letter from an apostle arrived, that letter would have been read aloud before the entire gathered assembly. Paul assumes that the children are in those meetings. He assumes that the children are gathered for worship with their parents. They haven't been excused to some other place. They're not in the back playing Nintendo Switch or whatever. He assumes that the children are worshiping with their parents. He assumes family discipleship is taking place. And so he speaks directly to the children in the room. And he gives two pieces of instruction or two commands. The first thing he says is, children, obey your parents. Obey your parents. This command applies until a child leaves the home. That boundary was established by verse 31, back in chapter 5. A time will come when the children will leave their family of origin, leave their parents, and cleave to their spouse, starting their own family. But until that day when the child leaves the home, the child is called to obey your parents. Why? Why must you obey? Not simply because your parents say so. You obey in the Lord, meaning in respect for the Lord Jesus Christ, understanding that it is the Lord who created the family, who assembled the family this way, who gave you those parents to love you and lead you, to protect and provide and govern and guide. So you're not just obeying because your parents say so. You're obeying out of your respect for the Lord Jesus Christ as the creator of the family. The second command here is honor. Honor your father and mother. This command applies throughout life. No time limit on this one. Even when we are grown, when we are adults, we still honor our parents. We honor them by seeking their, their counsel. Relying on their wisdom. As they get older, as they age and 
need certain types of care, we honor them by providing that care, even if it's an inconvenience for us. And notice that this command comes with a promise. If you obey your parents, if you honor your father and mother, the promise is that it will go well with you and that you will live long in the land. God promises to pour out his blessing on you, children. When you submit to his word, when you obey and honor your parents, that's significant. One last verse that I want you to see. Paul doesn't end the passage on the the children. He doesn't do that. In light of what he's taught us earlier, it wouldn't be right to do so. No, he ends the passage by speaking once more to the fathers. Verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, where are the mothers here? Why aren't they mentioned? Is it because they're not as important? No, that's not it. We've already established equal in dignity, value, worth, all of that. No, I think Paul speaks to the fathers for two reasons. One, he's already taught us that the father is to be the spiritual leader of the home, which means, men, you must lead the way in discipline and in instruction. I think the second reason that Paul focuses on fathers is because God commands to our weaknesses. God commands to our weaknesses. And most women, most wives, mothers, don't need to be reminded to be involved in the day-to-day affairs of their children, right? They don't need that reminder the way that men, if we're honest, we do need it. We do need it. So God commands to our weaknesses, he calls us, fathers, to lead the way in both disciplining and instructing. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. There must be discipline in the Christian home, but discipline done rightly. When our children disobey, because there's no perfect child, there's no perfect family. When our children disobey, we should discipline them. With directness, what you did was wrong. And there will be formative consequences. We also discipline with gentleness, though. Directness and gentleness. What you did was wrong, son. And you know what? I remember making the same mistake. We're in this same boat together. I understand why you did it. I want you to learn something from it. Directness, gentleness, and finally, there must be that promise of forgiveness. Son, what you did was wrong. I remember making the same mistake. There will be some formative consequences for us to talk about, but I want you to know that I forgive you. And most importantly, God has forgiven us. See, every every opportunity like that, every moment of discipline, is an opportunity to put the gospel on display in your home. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. Discipline appropriately and lead the way in instruction. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Dads, you are pastor dad. You're pastor dad. So you need to know the state of your flock. It's on you to know 
how your wife's relationship with the Lord is, how your children's relationship with the Lord is, how you're all getting along together, your pastor, dad. You know, many of the things that we must teach our children must be taught when our children are young. They can't be instilled later. There was a recent study done by Barna, leading Christian research group, that showed that most spiritual beliefs are set, largely set, by the time a child is 13 years old. So start when your children are young. And dads, we provide tools to help you with this. That family discipleship guide that I talk about or we talk about every Sunday morning, don't be lazy, use that thing. It's going to help you start and steer spiritual conversations in your home. Lead the way. How do we rebuild the ruins of our society? How do we rebuild things? By forming our own families. The family is the cornerstone of society. How do we win the spiritual war? By training our own platoons. By assembling our families the way God teaches us to assemble them. To the wife, God says, gladly affirm, gladly affirm your husband as the leader of the family. To the husband, God says, gladly assume, pick up that sacrificial responsibility. And to the children, God says, obey, show honor to your parents. This is the Lord's will, and this is how your family will flourish. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, God, that you are the creator, the designer, the organizer of the family. I suspect that there are some things in this passage this morning that make us uncomfortable. And it's in moments like this that we discover if we truly believe in the authority of your word. It's easy to obey your word when we like what it says. It's much more difficult when we don't like it. But God, deep down in our hearts, we know that you are good. Father, you sent your son to die for us. Jesus, you gave yourself willingly for us. You are good. You are loving. We trust you. We follow you. We follow you even in the way you tell us to organize or assemble our families. So for the wives today who have been fighting, who have not been trusting, encouraging, supporting. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict their hearts today. For the husbands who have not been leading the way you teach us to lead, God, I pray that your Spirit would convict their hearts. For the children who have been disobedient 
disrespectful. I pray that your spirit would convict their hearts. And as we experience this conviction, remind us all of the hope of the gospel. That when we confess our sins, whatever they are, when we confess our sins, God, you are faithful and just to forgive us because of the sacrifice of your son. There is hope. It's a new day. Things can change. By the power of your spirit, I pray that they will. In Jesus' name, amen.